Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. In this episode, Facebook fights with a political data firm accused of misusing its data and with conservatives who say the company has a double standard. This is the Influence Watch podcast. This week, Washington has been fighting over allegations that the Republican-aligned political data firm Cambridge Analytica broke the Facebook terms of service to obtain personal data on roughly 50 million Facebook users without the proper authorizations. The firm, now kicked off the Facebook platform, was notable for its close alignment with right-wing political donors Robert and Rebecca Mercer and worked for the 2016 presidential campaigns first of U.S. Senator Ted Cruz and later Donald Trump. But if the Republicans bent or broke Facebook's rules, they aren't alone in attempting to exploit the vast trove of personal information that users have voluntarily given to the tech company. President Barack Obama's 2012 re-election campaign was highly praised at the time for its use of social media data to engage in micro-targeting of likely Democratic voters using interpersonal contacts. The liberal data firm Catalyst, itself closely aligned with the Secretive Democracy Alliance, a left-wing donor conclave, exists in a legal gray area where left-of-center nonprofits, campaigns, and activists may breach legal firewalls that prohibit quote-unquote coordination between nonprofits and political campaigns. So, Mike, let's start with Cambridge Analytica. What is it? So, after President Obama wins re-election in 2012, a lot of stories come out about the sophisticated data targeting advertising operation that the Obama campaign ran. And the Republicans were terrified, you know, were, I think it's fair to say terrified, that if they couldn't replicate the sophistication, the uh, you know, the the scale of Obama's targeting operation, of Obama's messaging operation on social media platforms, that you know that that would be the killer app for the Democrats for an indefinite period. So along comes the this British uh, this British company which spins off an American subsidiary because there were very strict rules regarding foreign-owned uh, foreign political consultancies in, Ameri in American elections. Uh, so they spin off, uh, they spin off uh, Cambridge Analytica, base it, in, uh, base it legally in the United States, and it comes to some prominent Republicans saying, we have, we can counter the Democrats' killer app. We can counter... The Obama administration, the Obama campaigns, and the Democrats' uh, data operation—the knowledge that they have about all the voters who might vote for them and who might not vote for them—and they first connected, I believe, with, uh, as we mentioned, uh, Robert and Rebecca Mercer, who are connected to Renaissance Technologies, which is itself a hedge fund that uses very high-tech data work uh, for right. financial Ro Robert, Robert Mercer himself, uh, who is one of the co-founders of, of Renaissance Technologies, this hedge fund. Like He describes himself as a computer programmer. Um, so they come to, uh, they connect with, with the Mercer family, who are very, uh, very prominent Republican donors. In the 24, they 
Cambridge Analytica starts up in the 2014 elections, works for John Bolton's super PAC, works for a couple of senatorial campaigns. Uh, and then as the 2016 elections spool up, uh, because of their connections with Robert and Rebecca Mercer, uh, they go to work for Ted Cruz's presidential campaign in 2015. Which was who the Mercers initially which, were back. Right, which was the, the, the Mercers first choice. Uh, in the 2016 Republican primaries. And later on, after uh, Cruz is eliminated uh, and the general election begins, the Mercers change their support very prominently uh, to Donald Trump, and Donald Trump brings on Cambridge Analytica uh, to work alongside its in-house data and targeting operation. Okay. The, um, and who are some of the key people uh, besides the Mercers connected to Cambridge Analytica? Uh, someone you might have heard of is the controversial former White House aide and former proprietor of the controversial website Breitbart News, Steve Bannon, uh, who was a vice president at the company, uh, widely believed to have been installed by the Mercers, who, invent, who invested a substantial sum of money in Cambridge Analytica. Yep. Though, as I recall, he had to, when he went to the White House, uh, Bannon had to cut ties to it. Yes, yes. When, when, he, when he went into the government uh, for, for a brief period, he did have to, he did have to leave the company. Um, and then the now suspended CEO, Alexander Nix, uh, who, after all this stuff came out, was suspended by the company's board. Uh, you know, he was the, the proprietor of the... Uh, of Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, and not someone known to have particular ideological tendencies himself, more a smooth-talking Etonian. Right. Uh, You know, a brief digression on kind of political consulting as an industry. A lot of, you know, some people get into it because they're they're ideologically committed. They're either, they really believe in the free market or they really believe in social democracy. So they decide, I'm going to help candidates who support my my beliefs get elected. Other people get into it for money. Now, many people who get into it for the first reason, who get into it because they're sincere believers, realize the money is really good. And that then they kind of wander over the line to becoming mercenaries. Uh, But Nix does not, all the reporting I've read seems to suggest that Nix kind of started in the mercenary camp, that he was not you know, an ideologically committed populist uh, who then, you know, decided I'm going to use my expertise to get populists elected and to win populist campaigns. Uh, He was, he'd started this data firm, you know, apparently like the parent company had some loose association with the Tory, with the British Tories back in the 90s. Uh, But the, you know, Nix himself you know, is is very, I've, as far as I've seen, nowhere described as a committed ideologue. He seems like he was mercenary. Yep. And when this suave Etonian uh, was selling himself and his firm, uh, what was the secret sauce uh, that he was selling? So the buzzword is psychographics, that somehow by determining that, like, you watch this TV, sh- you know, you volunteer to Facebook that you're a fan of this TV show or that you're a fan of this uh, music artist, that by connecting all that and connecting your social graph, which is everyone that you're friends with, that they could figure out, ah, you are, you have these personality traits and that these personality traits mean 
one, that you have, you know, this likelihood of voting for these candidates, but also that uh, that if I'm going to persuade you, if I'm going to try to persuade you, uh, the the example apparently, according to I think it was Sasha Eisenberg, who went back in 2015, went to Cambridge Analytica's office and did the whole. He's a he was writing for Bloomberg News at the time. I'm not sure where he is now. Um, uh, he's written on political data from kind of the beginning of political data. His most notable work is his book on the 2012 Obama campaign, The Victory Lab. Now out with 2016. <laughs> and, which has uh, now, yeah. now been updated. Um, so Sasha Eisenberg goes to Cambridge Analytica and kind of to see, kind of get their pitch to see how they do what they do. And the pitch that the example that they gave was that they, in attempting to persuade a potential a person uh, why not to support gun control they you know if you modeled that you were you know more communitarian you would use a a uh, you would use a message that was more about you know defense of the state you know defense of the state and if but if you were more if you had different personality traits it would be more about you know what are you going to do when something goes bump in the night a lot of people who work in this area will, you know, will, will tell reporters and will tell you privately that this isn't the secret sauce that Cambridge Analytica was saying that it was. That, that it was, uh, that the medicine was considerably less efficacious than claimed. Right. Yeah. Well, then, now, most recently, Nix has been in the news because of some uh, selectively edited undercover videos done by BBC uh, Channel 4. Channel 4 is actually not part of the BBC. Oh. It's one of the, it, it is uh, the, the, the two major private, not government-owned not government owned, uh, British media are ITV and Channel 4. Uh, so, yes, Channel 4 makes this selective, you know, the selectively edited, selectively edited undercover video uh, in which Nix uh, sits down with someone who's pitch, who, who, to, to pitch somebody and or somebody who is claiming to be um, a political, a, a person who wants to hire Cambridge Analytica for campaign. Uh, and, you know, he, Nix goes on that, you know, that they can, like, solicit Ukrainian hookers to <laughs> uh, to get the opponents compromised. This was not an American election, mean, not for an American election. It wasn't set up that way. But, um, you know. Yeah, Cambridge and, Analytica uh, and its parent company work in around the world in elections. Uh, and in that, they are not alone. Uh, one of America's major service exports is political consultants. Jim Messina, who ran Obama's 2012 campaign, worked for David Cameron, uh, the former prime minister of the United Kingdom. Uh, he worked for, I believe he worked for the Remain campaign in the UK European Union membership referendum. He worked for the uh, Social Democratic Party in Italy on a referendum. Uh, you know, and it's uh, not just Jim Messina, but uh, a lot of American political consultancies, when there's not an American, not an election going on in America, uh, keep the revenue up by going abroad. So Cambridge Analytica goes abroad and apparently makes this unethical offer to someone purporting to be um, someone purporting to be a uh, working working in a foreign in a foreign election. Uh, now. I personally am skeptical of the findings of any investigation of this type. Uh, however, it does suggest kind of a willingness to engage in unethical behavior. 
Yes, no, that, that's, that's true. Uh, I, I do think we should be careful to point out the double standard that's this, that this kind of uh, investigation is the sort of thing that James O'Keefe and his Project Veritas are known for doing in America, and many of the mainstream media sources who are lapping up uh, the Channel 4. Right, right. Uh, every, you know, and, undercover and, and right, video. Every, everyone who, you know, it, it's, the, it's the classic, you know, based on uh, which side's, you know, egg is in the fryer, you know, own, you know, you know, Fox News will put the put the James O'Keefe, you know, James O'Keefe video on the A block, uh, and CNN will dismiss it as selectively edited nonsense. And, you know, then the Alexander Nix video is in the CNN A block, and Fox News dismisses it as selectively edited nonsense. Um, you know, I, again, I am skeptical of, <laughs> I am skeptical of all of this, but... Well, well and <laughs> all things said by all political operatives of all stripes, yes, should, uh, <laughs> should not be trusted and should be verified. But, well, let's, let's switch now more narrowly to the, um, to the Cambridge Analytica uh, and the Facebook scandal uh, connection. What is it exactly that Cambridge Analytica is alleged to have done uh, in terms of Facebook data? So my, under, my understanding, uh, as of the time of recording this podcast, uh, because again, it, 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 it may change, you know, it may change, is that a former employee uh, who revealed it to uh, the New York Times and the British newspaper, The Guardian, the British newspaper, The Guardian, uh, for those who aren't aware, is very closely aligned with the Labor Party. Uh, yeah. You can go to influencewatch.org and, uh, and find out all about The Guardian and its 501c3 foundation. Right. Uh, so he goes to The Guardian and The New York Times uh, and alleges that Cambridge Analytica managed to acquire the fa- a considerable amount of Facebook data by let's say false, pre- you know, under, under false pretenses. That's the allegation. That this academic uh, gentleman by the name of Alexander Kogan uh, created this personality test app back in, I think it was 2014. Uh, and then as a condition of using it, uh, that it would, hurt, it would gather data on not just the user, but also the user's Facebook friends. And what Kogan told Facebook is that he was using it for academic purposes. And that was a lie, uh, or that was a misrepresentation. So that, viol- you know, that Facebook has said violates our terms of service. That got Cambridge Analytica booted off the platform. They can no longer uh, run advertising. Uh, face- there are some allegations that that may violate British data protection laws, which are really, really strict. Um, so that has, that has gotten Cambridge Analytica into, into boiling water. And while it's important to say that the, I remember reading about this story at least a year or two ago, I mean, the, this, the, right. the, 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 the news was, that, that Cambridge Analytica and Kogan had done something like this was circling, has been circulating for a good while. There were, I've, I have read rumors about it going back as early as 2015, shortly after the, uh, this app was created and the data was collected. Now, apparently what Facebook is saying is that they realized that Cambridge Analytica had misled them. They went to Cambridge Analytica and said, you have to delete all the data. Cambridge Analytica said, okay, we'll delete all the data, and then they didn't. This is what Facebook is alleging. So obviously, you know, if they did that, then Facebook, like any social media platform, 
Facebook is owned by its owners, and it is their it is their bar, it is their rules, and if you break their rules, they will throw you out. Now we will have an argument about whether they are uh, whether there's a double standard in deciding who they throw out, but be very clear. On any social media platform, you are not standing in a public. You are not standing in the city park, and you do not have the First Amendment right to say whatever you want. You are in somebody else's bar, and if you're breaking the bar's rules, the barkeep can throw you out. Yep. The uh, now the uh, a Facebook whistleblower, Sandy Paralikas, who's been uh, talking to the Guardian uh, and other reporters, uh, helping to, to break the latest version of all this story. One of the points, uh, he actually quit um, even before this time. I believe it was 2012 that he quit. But he had worked at Facebook, and he had seen that lots of apps were doing this sort of thing. And he kept uh, complaining to his employers. And he also makes the point that Facebook's terms of service include their right to go to any developer like Kogan and the rest and not only say, we don't want you to do X or we want you to promise us you will not do X, but to demand uh, audits of what they had done. Um, but in fact, Facebook pretty much never did that, including certainly right. in this case. And, it, and it's, important to, it's important to note something about your interaction with Facebook, your interaction with any social media platform. Unless you are paying a subscription, you are not the consumer. You and your data are the product that that company is selling not only to political advertisers, but to everyone who will buy it. Yes. Mostly, mostly commercial businesses. Uh, so, what what happen, You know, again, what what happens is that you know you freely volunteer you know your inf- personal information to these platforms. And then the platform collects it, advertisers, and again, if you ask what kind of company is Facebook, ultimately it's an advertising company. It is selling advertising space. It has your eyeballs. It is selling a share of your eyeballs to people who, will, who want to sell you something. Yes. Now, the, the other question, of course, is um, to go back to that same whistleblower, Paralykus, uh I have not seen definitive evidence of, and Facebook certainly hasn't produced definitive evidence of how many uh, developers of other apps were doing this sort of thing where they, you, they get somebody to sign up to their app and then they grab that person's uh, friends list, essentially. And the, um, in 2015, Facebook changed its own rules and made it much harder for that to be done. Uh, according to the whistleblower Paralikas, his guess is that there were tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of apps um, that did the sort of thing that Kogan right. and, and Cambridge Analytica and, allegedly did. Right, and you know, let's let's make something clear. You know, a lot of the you know the media has, of course, because it involves the Trump campaign, uh, again, gone into sort of a frenzy. The 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 whistleblower who went to the the former employee of Cambridge Analytica went to the Guardian. You know, the Guardian headlines it that he. He says he built Steve Bannon's psychological warfare tool. I'm making air quotes, uh, you know, and that the techniques hijack are hijacking the profiles of millions of Facebook users. You know, Newsweek proving that it's worth the one dollar that it was pay that it, its current owners bought the entire magazine for. Uh, you know, went so far as to say it was using Facebook data to snatch the election for Trump. 
Um, that's not really what happened. Uh, to the extent that Cambridge Analytica's psychographic techniques even work, this is just the Facebook business model. The Facebook business model is to take data freely volunteered by people to package it nicely for commercial businesses and for political consultancies and for anybody who wants to buy it and to sell it to them. And, you know, what, you know, you can say that what Kogan did was unethical, what Kogan did was unethical because he, you know, misled about, allegedly misled about the purpose he was using it for. You know, that may be a breach of contract, but it's not like when Chinese hackers penetrated the Office of Personnel Management and took all the data on people who work for the federal government. Yeah, millions and millions. Literally, of, literally millions yeah. of people. And, and when we say the data, we don't mean my friends include Aunt Sally and my old high school girlfriend. We mean your social security right. number and your entire <laughs> confidential background check right. information. Right, your, 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 uh, your SF-86. Yes. Which is the, which is the form that uh, all security cleared uh, federal employees must must disclose all the all the things they've ever done. Yes, that is that is more than Aunt Sally and I like Newman's own spaghetti sauce. Yes, um, <laughs> and uh, the um, uh, to, now I I want to be fair too because we uh, we often criticize the mainstream media and they and you were in the middle of quite rightly criticizing the the media frenzy on this. Um, one suspects that they might like the idea of finding a new way to claim that the last presidential election was illegitimate. So this brings them a new way to try to do that. But um, but I think we should uh, give a shout out to the New York Times, because actually in their recent reporting, they reported with, with considerable thoroughness and fairness, they uh, pointed out both that um, it is not. It's it's unlikely that the psycho psychographic psyops warfare yeah. uh, that's that's being spun Steve out Bannon's in these stories, data weapon. <laughs> um, that probably Cambridge Analytica didn't even attempt to use that in its right. so, work with yeah. Trump. And and Cambridge Analytica shortly after the election, even before this this whole thing blew up, uh, said you know no we didn't use our we didn't use our psychographic tools in the American general election. Again, they might be lying. They seem to be rather, you know, if you believe these allegations, they seem to be rather unethical. But there's no there's no evidence has come forward that they did use them. Yeah, when they were saying that back when, as far as anybody knew, using social media to help your candidate was a brilliant thing to do. <laughs> and they said, no, actually, we didn't really do it. And then the other thing the New York Times um, has done thorough reporting on is that whatever it was that Cambridge Analytica did in 2016, it probably wasn't very effective. In fact, it looks like other data firms were a little more effective in the way they were uh, working on messaging. Right. And again, you can you can always question whether you know a former client who goes to the media and badmouths you is telling the truth. But you, if you read the reporting, a lot more of, and even, again, before it blew up and before it became controversial to associate with these people, uh, a lot of people who would be asked by the media, hey, did, was this helpful? Did this, you know, are they, are they everything they're cracked up to be? A lot of people would say no. Uh, it's hard to find a former client, you know, a former client or a, uh, who would go to the, you know, who when questioned by the press would say, you know, yeah, Cambridge Analytica really helped us win our election. Uh, it seems that there may have been a little bit of snake oil salesmanship going on. Yeah, well, which, again, proving the rule that, um, 
any political operative of any stripe is almost certainly telling you that he's bigger, badder, and more dangerous than he is. I, I, I mentioned that this uh, that political consulting tends to promote a mercenary ethic. <laughs> yes. Now, the I, I want to take a, just one second and because this we talk in, in the, the media in general talk about micro-targeting, this, that, and the other. I, I'm not sure the average person has uh, too clear a grasp on what's even involved here, but it's typically thing, you know, it, it's not that exotic. It's targeting emails with particular messages to particular demographic groups or Facebook advertising to them or Google AdWord advertising. In a, in a, it, uh, Jim Garrity of the National Review in his one of his morning newsletters uh, discussed one of the ways that micro-targeting, micro-targeting was done in 2004. And it's a little bit easier to make sense of back then when it was all, you know, when it was, you know, when the newspaper was still a paper. Um, what the Bush campaign did was, the George W. Bush campaign did, was they went to uh, Garden and Gun and Guns and Ammo and got magazines. And, magazines and bought their subscriber lists, uh, which are available to advertisers. And then went through that, went through those lists, collated those lists, and messaged them on hunting issues and gun rights issues. Uh, that so that the Bush campaign was able to tell these people things they wanted to hear. Yeah. So what, one of the uh, points about micro—I'm I, sorry. One other way micro targeting gets used is also people's cable boxes. So if they know that Mike Watson, well, let's pick your example there. Let's say Mike Watson loves watching hunting shows, so there's a good chance that he cares about the Second Amendment. So his cable box is identified and sent nice Second Amendment uh, advertising in hopes that that will encourage Mike Watson to go out and vote a Republican in November. So th those are the kinds of ways that they're, that they're reaching people. And then, of course, the point of this is that um, in elections, you have to be worried about positives and negatives. So you, you want to increase enthusiasm uh, with positive things among your own people. You, if you can, you'll be happy to suppress enthusiasm for the other side. They don't have to vote for you. It's good enough if the, some of them will just stay home and not vote for your opponent. Um, so you're, you're trying to move uh, both those kinds of things. The other thing you're trying to do is you're trying not to inflame other people. So if I buy a television ad on the Super Bowl on the Second Amendment, I will reach Mike Watson, um, who loves hunting and care, supports the Second Amendment, but I'll also reach uh, mo suburban moms who are terrified of all things gun, and I'll have a backlash. So micro-targeting allows you to be right. It allows, uh, it allows It allows you to tailor your message to the people you want to hear it. Rather than, again, use your example of buying a Super Bowl ad, you get everyone. And that means that you're going to put your message in front of people who want to hear it, people who don't care, which is just wasted money, and people who are repelled by it. Uh, and that is worse than wasted money. That's money that you just spent helping your opponent. Yeah. And the one final thing on the on the just the nitty gritty process of this, because this is something that uh, I've seen talked about almost nowhere, but it's actually incredibly important, and it's definitely an area where the Democrats and the left are way way ahead of the Republicans, and that is the real value of micro-targeting comes in first testing messages and messengers. So, and they literally do it like a drug test. Um, you know, if you if there's a new drug yeah, to be the, tried. The, the, the 
you know, I, I, to, con- to mm, finish, sure. to finish your example, mm-hmm. I didn't mean it, it didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, you know, they'll they'll test the drug against a sugar pill, and if you know, with once you've done all the statistical methodology and clever science, you know, if the the test drug does better than the sugar pill, then you can reasonably conclude that the drug works. So in advertising, you know, in advertising, and this again doesn't just apply to political advertising; it also applies to regular commercial advertising. You know. If you are in a situation where you can have one group of people get one message, then A test, and one group of people get another message, a B test, and if your whatever your metric for engagement is, signups for your email list, buying a product, uh, you know, agreeing to volunteer in Canvas for a petition, if you get more responses from the A message in your test than the B message, then you can step back, not use the B message, and take the A message and put it to a, the broader whole audience that you're trying to reach. Yes, and, and if our listeners will go back and read the 2012 mainstream media when it was gushing over the Obama campaign, one of the points is that they were constantly doing this. They, with things as little as the subject line of emails would get tested and tested and if, tested. So for the past couple of election cycles, a lot of people have made fun of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee's emails, the triple match kittens. That's all A-B tested. They raise lots of money from small dollar donors using those stupid emails. That's the kind of thing that you can do with micro-targeting. If you're laughing at it, you're just not the target audience, and they don't care what you think. Yep. Uh, we should. I should add that uh, if you go back in capitalresearch.org and search for the Analyst Institute, you'll discover there's an entire left-wing think tank that is devoted precisely to all this science of manipulation. Um, uh, because among other things, the left has trouble that a lot of its uh, the voters it wants to get at uh, are often not registered or often not easily persuaded to get to the polls and the rest, and they have these. Uh, shaming messages that they send them like, most people in your neighborhood are registered to vote and you're not, and things like that to, to be nudging them along. But, um, well, the uh, uh, we've, we've talked about how Kogan and Cambridge Analytica did its work with its Facebook things. Um, let's talk a little more about what the uh, that in the 2016 election, let's uh, give a little more detail on what the Obama campaign was doing along these lines in 2012. So the the rules in 2012, the Facebook rules, the rules of Facebook, the rules of the bar, were different. Uh, what it's now much harder to get the data of the friends of an app user, but back in 2012. The, uh, the Obama campaign used its Are You In app to get uh, not only information on friends, but they could then you know, use all of the, fa- you know, the clever Facebook data to figure out which friends needed to be persuaded. Including which friends were in critical battleground states. Well, obviously, those are the ones you would be most interested in persuading because the Obama campaign actually knew how the Electoral College worked. The, but, you know, let's say that, you know, you have, you know, a friend who's really enthusiastic about Obama signs up for the Obama campaign app back in, you know, in 2011 when the president formally announces for re-election. And then, you know, so they get the, they get the friends and then they get all the, you know, they get all the data. And then, you know, 10 months later, it's, you know, September of 2012, the general election is kicked off. 
uh, and they're looking, you know, you have this friend in Florida who probably is going to vote for Obama. You know, he's poor, you know, he, his, his page likes all look pretty, you know, pretty Democratic. He fits the profile of a Democratic voter. Uh, but he also fits the profile of somebody who's lazy and might not vote. So then the Obama campaign app would tell the user, the friend who kicked off this whole, this whole uh, cycle, you know, remember to nudge Steve and remind him how important his vote is and how important it is that President Obama be reelected. And the level of sophistication that the Obama campaign uh, was able to get at this uh, was such that Sasha Eisenberg, who I mentioned earlier, uh, was that the Obama campaign could perhaps slightly exaggeratedly, but reasonably claim that it may know the name of the 69 million or so people who voted for Barack Obama in 2008. And the level, uh, and one of the Obama campaign veterans during, as all this is blowing up, uh, about Cambridge Analytica, uh, went on Twitter and actually discussed some of the level of sophistication that they had with their app. Uh, so I'll, 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 I'll now quote. This is, for, this is from Carol Davidson, who is the project manager on the Obama campaign app, the RUN app. Facebook was surprised we were able to suck out the whole social graph. Yeah, that, and social graph means the friend list. The, the, the friend list and your friend's friend list and all the connections between friends. But they didn't stop us once they realized that's what we were doing. They came, to, they came to the Obama campaign office in the days following, the election, following election recruiting and were very candid that they allowed us to do things that they wouldn't have allowed someone else to do because they were on our side. Yeah. Now, that, by the way, fascinates me as since we often talk campaign laws and the rest, there is at least the serious question here of whether this constitutes an in-kind contribution to the campaign. An in-kind contribution, for those who are unaware, is when instead of giving you money, I give you stuff or I give you services. Yes. Pollsters have to be careful. You can't, if you're a, if you're a public charity that conducts a poll, you cannot simply slip that to your favorite Senate candidate on the side. You have to make it available to the public. And, and, prov and proving that all, that all sides are naughty. In 2014, the, a Republican 501c4 was conducting polling and was using, was putting out publicly on Twitter so anybody could find it. And this is how they got caught. But it was all very, you know, it was in this, it was in this sort of secret code that so that that way the campaigns would know ah the, the polls says this but that people looking around on twitter wouldn't know, one wouldn't know where to look and two wouldn't know necessarily what the what the code meant uh, of course they got caught which is why i'm telling you this yeah well when when uh, uh mark zuckerberg goes in front of the federal election commission to testify on all these things uh, which i believe he's scheduled to do june 27th uh, i certainly hope that the obama staffer will be also be testifying uh, about her interactions with his company uh, back in the 2012 campaign. Uh, I, I want to make two distinctions on this, too, and that is one is that uh, the allegations against Cambridge Analytica are that it pulled out uh, the data on friends of people and then tried to figure out how uh, to message to them and the rest. That's, that's the full extent of, the, of even just the allegations. Yeah, we, and, and that they did so under false pretenses. Yeah, and, and under false pretenses. But in the case of the Obama campaign here, they went a step further, and they didn't just take your friend information and, and hope to, to calculate how to do something with your friends. They were sp 
pushing you to do particular things with those right. friends. Right. Instead of instead of saying, "Okay, now I know this. Now I know all the sophisticated data about you. Here's here's the message. I'm serving you, paid for by Donald J. Trump for president." It's I'm going to serve to your friend. I'm going to let's call him Bill. I'm going to tell Bill, "Hey, tell Steve that it's important that you know." Steve get his health care through Obamacare. And then Bill goes to Steve and Bill says, you know, Steve, you know, I, I know you've had, I know you I know you've been sick a couple times. You know, you know, Obamacare is really good for you. And the 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 clever thought is that when you see ad paid for by whoever for president, you know, okay, there's a you discount in, in, in most in 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 you know most adults know, okay, this is an advertisement. This is not, you know, that this is just an ad. Your friend comes and tells you something. That's an interpersonal interaction. That's someone you trust. That seems organic. And what the, the, the clever insight of the Obama campaign was that by promoting these interpersonal interactions, they could have not only an effective message that they had A-B tested, you know, 3,700 times, but a messenger who could deliver that message. Yes, because even the... Uh Interpersonal communications are trusted not only more than campaigns, but also more than just the news media. So better even than being able to right. to, to better to work better, the news better cycle. even than than serving up, you know, the New York Times says vote for Obama. Yeah, and then one other distinction I want to make here is, and this I've never seen the full numbers on, but the numbers for Kogan's initial survey participants from which yeah the Cambridge the, Analytica the app then from which he went got yeah. the. Supposedly got the, the data. Yeah, so the, the people who took Kogan's initial test, which then got and then had their own friend lists scooped up, uh, supposedly by Kogan and Cambridge Analytica, that was 270,000 initial participants, which supposedly yielded about 50 million total Facebook users. Now, so 270,000 yielded 50 million. Uh, the Obama campaign's 2012 app, app that we've been talking about had at least a million initial users or participants. And I haven't seen anybody give a very clear estimate of what that translates to, but I have to think that a million is a lot more than 270,000. So presumably... Right. It, probably, it, probably do, it probably doesn't scale linearly because, you know, people... There weren't 200 million Facebook users in 2012, well, probably, in, in, the in, the, yeah, in the United in States. Um, you know, but there are, we can reasonably, we can reasonably estimate that there were more than the 50 million than, that the 270 than, netted. Um, and certainly as a proportion of the Facebook user world. Yes. Especially since the, the just typically, of course, the, the, the left side of the spectrum skews younger, which skews more in use of social networks. But anyway, well, I want to move to, uh, to another topic here, which is, um, before uh, Cambridge Analytica, before Facebook, um, uh, there, or at least before politicized Facebook, um, there was another important data firm um, operating in the political sphere uh, well, for and, the and left. You're, you're, speaking in the, you're speaking in the past tense. Don't speak in the past tense. They're still around. I saw their office when I used to work in, in, on a different floor of their building. Ah. Uh, and that is uh, Catalyst LLC. Uh, it, Catalyst well, with uh, spelled C-A-T-A-L-I-S-T. And again, you can go to influencewatch.org and read all about it. Uh, including a select list of some of their clients. Yeah. Um, the What 
Catalyst was. It was created by the Democracy Alliance, the then sort of forming Democracy Alliance. So this is George Soros, Rob McKay, uh, Peter Lewis of Peter, Peter Lewis, the, la- uh, the late former chairman of Progressive Insurance. Um, uh, Harold Ickes, I think, was involved, the former uh, Clinton White House bagman. The and it was created because the the Democrats, the left, felt that they had fallen behind the. Uh, George W. Bush campaign and the Republicans in identifying voter identifying voter contacts and doing this micro-targeting stuff. So, uh, so all the like a lot of the big labor unions, a lot of the environmentalist groups, Democratic political campaigns, Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood have uh, you know contract with Catalyst, which has these databases of information on voters. Yeah, and we should say it's Catalyst LLC, which is to say it's a for-profit company, and therefore there is none of the disclosure requirements that fall on the various flavors of 501c3, 4, and 6. And 501c, 501c-X. The, yeah. uh, and the Democracy Alliance is very aware of this. Uh, in 2014, they gave a presentation, uh, Committee on States, which we discuss on InfluenceWatch.org, uh, which is the sort of state-level counterpart to the Democracy Alliance, was giving a presentation at the Democracy Alliance meeting, and they had a PowerPoint presentation that they foolishly let slip into the hands of Lachlan Marquet, then of the free, then of the Washington Free Beacon. And in it, there's this little diagram where it shows, you know, that there's this firewall between political campaigns and exa- explicitly partisan activity and... Nonprofits, 501c-X, but especially C3, which can't do any electioneering whatsoever. And But one of the ways to get around the firewall was data analytics and research LLCs. And who was the big data analytics and research LLC on the left? Catalyst. <laughs> so, which is to say, um, legally, it is verboten for a 501c3 or a 501c4 and whatnot to coordinate uh, its work with a p- particular political campaign. Right. If, I, if, I, if I'm a C- C3, I can't electioneer at all. If I'm a C4, I cannot call up your campaign and say, hey, what message should I test? What should I test? I have $500,000 to spend on ads. Uh, you know, and it's a little different. You know, I'm not super certain on fives and sixes, but the, what the having a data analytics and research LLC lets you do is you know, the campaign hires Catalyst, and then I, the outside group, hire Catalyst, and we're all using the same information because our uh, our consultants are using the same information. Yep. There also has been the allegation, uh, the FEC did not sustain it, but the, but the Federal Election Commission did have complaints uh, from some of folks on the uh, fighting against the Catalyst's candidates that uh, Catalyst would providing this kind of data service at below market rates to uh, nonprofits and the rest because precisely because George Soros was making multi-million dollar investments which which, which in would be naughty naughty because that would be an in, if that was used in an election campaign that would be an in-kind contribution and if you don't report an in-kind contribution then you get in trouble yes so uh, that was in 2015 that the uh, that those allegations were made well to, to to pull back to the the bigger picture here you've just gotten into these complicated uh, campaign finance laws that we have, and probably all of these controversies uh, ha- have a lot to do with those highly complex campaign finance laws, correct? 
Yeah. So back in the back in back in the ancient times of the 1990s, what you you could do if you were if you were a rich guy and you really were really committed either for interest group corrupt reasons or for I'm just an ideologue reasons that I really want party you know I really want the Republicans to win. Let's say uh, you could write a very large check to the Republican Party. The, the Republican National Committee, and it was called soft money. And the Republican National Committee, as long as they didn't just pass that on to campaigns, could use it for whatever they needed it for. Uh, in 2002, a law was passed called the Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act. Better known as McCain-Feingold. Known as McCain-Feingold after its sponsors, Democrat Russ Feingold of Wisconsin and Republican John McCain of Arizona, that uh, banned that sort of thing. And what the fatal conceit behind obviously the bipartisan campaign, uh, obviously McCain-Feingold, but also kind of our whole superstructure of campaign finance laws is that money always finds a way. So even before Citizens United, the Democrats uh, formed Americans coming together with the AFL-CIO, Soros, some of the other major liberal donors to try to defeat George W. Bush. In... uh, you know, and then once, you know, and, and the Democrats formed the, the, the Colorado Democracy Alliance and the Democracy Alliance to organize their donors into a, into a concerted, into a concerted uh, activity. And then in 2010, Citizens United comes out, which says a that— Supreme Court decision. Supreme Court, Supreme Court decision in Citizens United versus FEC, which, let's be clear, the, what matter at issue was Citizens United, which is a 501c4— yeah, five hundred one c four. Conservative group made a documentary about bad things Hillary Clinton had done when she was running as a candidate in the primary elections, uh, and they were told you cannot air it because it's too close to the election. And the Supreme Court ruled five to four that that was not acceptable. That was a violation of free speech. And as a result, as long as there's no coordination, that I I don't call your campaign and say what message should I use. Uh, that you can spend as much money as you want promoting a message about political issues or political candidates regardless of how close it is to an election. The problem with combining Citizens United and McCain-Feingold is that now rich people who have either ideological or interest group reasons to to to, to spend lots of money on politics, is that they basically try to create their own private political machines. Yeah, we've made it illegal for them simply to support a political right. party. Right, we've made it illegal for them to work through the formal party mechanisms. So they create these sidecar parties. Uh, we discussed two of them in episode nine, where we discussed uh, the Koch Seminar Network uh, of the you know Libertarian Republicans, Charles and David Koch, and the... Uh, you know, we just and obviously we discussed George Soros, who is one of the major players in the Democracy Alliance, which is a, you know, instead of it being private to one guy, it's private to a few dozen. Um, there also is Tom Steyer's Next Gen Climate Networks. Perhaps the closest analog to what we're discussing today with uh, Robert and Rebecca Mercer is Tom Steyer's Next Gen, uh, which are a series of PACs and 501c groups that are. Uh, you know, our push a left-wing environmentalist uh, approach. And the reason that 
a lot of people think Cambridge Analytica was as prominent as they were is that they were seen as a cog in the wheel of the political machine that Robert and Rebecca Mercer were building. Which also included Breitbart News. Which included the, the controversial website Breitbart News, which Steve Bannon chaired while he was VP of Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. So, so our laws have, uh, you know, or b- better put, many people now will jump up and down screaming that it's terrible that the Kochs have so much influence on our politics. But of course, the people who scream that tend to be the ones who insist on precisely the campaign finance regulations that screwed up the old traditional right. and, 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 their, and, their, and their solution is, oh, get rid of Citizens United. Well, the problem is then there's, I mean, Capital Research Center, which puts on this podcast and InfluenceWatch.org, uh, released a report on the flows of money in politics before and after Citizens United recent, uh, fairly recently. And what we discovered is that the Citizens United money, the the 501c4 advocacy groups, dark money, I put in air quotes, the biggest change in the money flows before and after the Supreme Court handed down its decision in 2010 was that the 501c3 non-electoral public policy world of think tanks of and whatnot. think tanks, organizations like Capital Research Center got a lot bigger. Uh, I believe it doubled, it doubled or tripled in size, and it was already the biggest pot of money. Uh, money always finds a way. Um, and then the other lesson here is that if you are building a private political machine, if you're getting in bed with sleazy people who do sleazy things, as it seems that Alexander Nix might have been, then that's going to rebound on you, and that's going to rebound on the institutions that you build. Yep. And uh, the irony is that, on the one hand, that's an argument for trying to maintain high ethical standards, but you don't even necessarily have to be particularly fussy on the ethical side. It may suffice just to be fussy on the pure expediency side of, okay, Mr. Potentially Very Sleazy Political Operative, um, can you show me, demonstrate to me, right. that if, if you, I go along with you, it's right. even going to make if a big difference? If you take it as seriously as you take your business, do you get in this situation? Yeah. What businessmen, when, they're, when, uh, when a vendor comes to a, to a sharp businessman, the vendor is grilled ruthlessly to demonstrate Grill, that he has something of value. Grilled ruthlessly with, from a position of knowledge. Now, when that businessman then goes and plays in politics— does he have the same knowledge? Does he have somebody that he can trust who can grill the the political vendor? Because there are a lot of snake oil salesmen in this town. <laughs> yep. Well, let's. Uh, we, we're running out of time. Let's talk about what the what are some of the likely repercussions from all of this uh, scandal and controversy for Facebook. So, trying to be, I'll try. I'll try to be as as quick as possible on two on two points. Uh, one is that, and in fact, in his discussions, I think it was on CNN last night, uh, we are recording this Thursday, uh, Thursday the 22nd, so it would have been uh, on Wednesday the 21st, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the proprietor of Facebook, went on, uh, went on CNN and got grilled by the, the CNN people, and he said that he's not sure that they shouldn't be regulated, that there should be some sort of government intervention, uh, that the 
the danger is that that government regulation looks like something like the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, which puts very, very strict conditions on even something as simple as signing up for an email list. Um, I had it described to me as if I give you my business card with, uh, with my email address on it, that you cannot put me on your email list unless I have express written authorization on the business card. Even if I told you, yeah, please, here's my business <laughs> card, sign me up, that unless I put it in writing. Yeah. This is a commentary on the hideous regulatory state of Europe. But. In, in many ways. But, you know, that's kind of the, 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 the potential destructive regulatory outcome. Uh, the other possibility, uh, and one that, you know, may may concern may provoke this the the regulatory possibility is that the silicon valley decides to become more partisan and that they decide that you know no we have to apply our rules differently for the what we see as the cent- as the good guy center left and against the bad guy populist right uh there are a couple of 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 good discussions on this were uh in i want to say Tuesday at National Review Online. So on the 19th, uh, Michael Brendan Dougherty wrote basically saying that, you know, this is the kicking Cambridge Analytica off the platform by Facebook is proof that, you know, the same tools that are available to lefties like President Obama are not going to be available to uh, populists and conservatives like Donald Trump. the other question, uh, you know, and uh, the Hoover Institution's historian Neil Ferguson wrote back in October a fairly long piece in the British Spectator uh, in which he outlined that the, the kind of the struggle between the, you know, generally center-left, generally internationalist and outlook Silicon Valley and the generally right-of-center, generally nationalist and outlook uh, Trump administration is going to be kind of one of the titanic battles of our time. You know, how long are these liberal internationalist um, uh, platforms going to allow populist nationalists to use them uh, knowing that, and, you know, this is kind of the premise of Ferguson's book that he's pitching, is that when you introduce new technologies, new communications technologies, it breaks down hierarchy and creates the sort of, for lack of a better word, anarchy that... Uh, that we see in the online space, that it happened before it happened when Martin Luther was printing theses on printing presses and provoking the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Ferguson wonders, again, whether if the platforms do decide to partisanize, whether the right will go after them. Uh, I have seen absolutely no evidence that the if, if put in a position to, between political expediency and ostensible principle that Republicans would choose anything other than political expediency. Yeah, I mean the the principle of uh, of opposing regulation. Yes. Well, the uh, I will say I was very disappointed in in Zuckerberg's uh, official comment that he made on the on all of this yesterday, precisely because he spent a great deal of time talking about Cambridge Analytica and fed the the mainstream media narrative that that really that's the only controversial thing to be concerned about in all of this, which well, is just, and, and as why, we and, and, why, and why would he say that? Because Facebook's entire business model relies on it being only about Cambridge Analytica. Yes, yes, that he, uh, the, well, or as I put it in an op-ed that's coming out, I think, uh, uh, tonight or tomorrow, um, when Zuckerberg... Uh, it, it, 
disagreeing with the media narrative is not going to help Zuckerberg deflect the heat he's going to, be, to get when he testifies, as he well may be forced to testify in front of uh, the Federal Election Commission and the Senate Judiciary Committee and the European Parliament and the British, British, Fire, Parliament, British Parliament and several other uh, entities the to be named later. The so, <laughs> yes. Well, that's, uh, that's our show for this week. I do want to say that uh, if you are following the news about this week's big uh, rally over uh, gun control, you should catch our episode 15 where we go into detail about both sides of that. Uh, but if you are listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, please know that we broadcast a live video version of this podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays on Facebook Live and YouTube. You can find our pages by searching Capital Research Center. And if you're watching the video version, we encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week.